I'm not interested in uh, giving a exact description of what the piece is exactly supposed to be. I always want people to have some kind of visceral response. It's always fascinating to me when people are repulsed, but most of the time they go, it's so beautiful. Hello, this is Barbara St. Clair. You're listening to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas, and I'm here with Babs Reingold, who is a local artist in Pinellas County of international renown. She's a visual artist working in very interesting materials, very interesting subject matter, but I'm going to jump right in and talk about climate change. I'm happy to talk about climate change. You had an installation called The Last Tree. Yes, it's a it's a big installation that encompasses 193 pails and the stumps that are in the pails are made of rust and tea stained silk organza and I stuff these stumps with human hair. In 2005 something struck me when Katrina hit and seeing the devastation I started thinking about really thinking about climate change. I mean prior to that I had been doing everything that you're supposed to do and try to be conscious. I would you know, recycle. I'm thinking about it but I really started to think we have to do something. This is serious business. I mean and I I started thinking about poverty and the relationship of poverty and climate change to each other. But the the interesting thing for me is the poverty came out of my own childhood and and I had not done anything with poverty and th and hadn't thought about it until Katrina hit. And then in 2006, we moved here the end of 2004 and we've been living here since. Um, we split time still between New York and here. Here being St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, right. And so I went to this lecture at USF, and Jared Diamond was speaking on his book called Collapse, Why Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. And something about seeing Katrina and, and listening to him talk about Easter Island, the society that was, now lives in total poverty, and because they cut down all their trees, they self-inflicted their wounds. And I started thinking of Easter Island as, as earth writ small. And the spark took a little while. And it was about, I think the first little study that I did, the first little drawing of this mass of these stumps so that you would kind of, and the idea like was tree to come stumps. in. Oh, tree stumps, exactly. They're tree stumps. And I had, at that point, I had already started making objects out of silk organza and stuffing them with human hair. And so I conceptualized this thing in 2008, and then it took, it, it took a little while longer because I was also sidetracked working on another project called Hung Out in the Projects, which happened at the Moran Art Center here. And that showed in 2010. And, and it was right after that that I got to work on the last tree. I got started on making the pails and making the stumps. And there's, I mean, they have these roots coming out of them. And when you enter the room, at first sight, you're not sure what the material is. And I, I kind of like that. And, and the installation itself is uh, positioned in a semi-darkened room. And the lights are focused really on the pails because there's a video component to it as well. And in the video, I have uh, Jared Diamond speaking about Easter Island. So I found this clip of him. I got permission from him to put it in, and it and it, uh, it it basically he basically says, you know, what do you think the islander was thinking when he chopped down the last tree, and what will we be thinking in the future, 
50 years from now or whatever, what were they thinking when they weren't thinking about climate change? The thing about Easter Island that I think is really important is that there is geological evidence, anthropological evidence, that it was an island of great forests and that the islanders who lived there literally did, over time, cut down every single tree. Yes. So when you say, what did the islander think about when they were cutting down the last tree, you're not talking metaphorically. You're not talking abstractly or or artistically. You are talking very, very literally. That somebody, some individual, must have taken an ax to the last standing tree on that island. What do you think they thought about that? Well, I, I think they they must have thought that the trees would regenerate themselves, and they must have thought that they're growing elsewhere on the island or something, and maybe they weren't all communicating. It's sort of the same thing that we're sitting here having a discussion about what were we thinking as we keep putting the carbon and the methane, all this stuff up into the air, and why are we not taking this more seriously? It's like when you're in the throes in the midst of something, the old stupid expression, you can't see the forest for the trees. You can't, you can't see it. You're inside of it and you don't know. And so in a way, we might be doing literally exactly what they did. And how could we not get it? That's the big question. I mean, my work doesn't have any answers. It just, I want it to ask questions. And that's a lot of it's a big part of what my work is about. I want the work to ask questions. And I, I always think of my art as a, uh, a process that's influenced by outside events. And for me, the process of making it is also part of the art, how you make it, how things transpire while you're making the art. I, I, I've been so seriously thinking about the comments that were made uh, by Jared Diamond on the factors of collapse and power and the United States and power and collapse. So to go back to your installation, there's these galvanized pails, you know, the just like the water pails you buy at the hardware store, a pail like that with a handle. 193. 193. Uh, stumps and one lone tree. Okay. The lone tree is 13 feet high and it's tethered up. It's literally because it's a soft sculpture. Mm -hmm. But I also like the concept of it being tethered. It's kind of hanging in the balance there, if you will. And the stumps, these are all sewn, and they're soft, stuffed sculptures. Mm -hmm. And these stumps are set inside a pail, and the surrounding, what what would represent dirt, is actually human hair. And the showing in uh, Buffalo was fascinating to look at it because every time you install it too it's not a set in stone installation in that it has to vary a bit wherever it's being shown depending Mm -hmm. on the room size Mm -hmm. although it takes up about 25 by 35 to 40 feet and I just have to figure out where to store it all when when I saw pictures of it and the stumps have they seem to have roots the feeling of roots yeah and it really is it's evocative of if, if anyone has if ever walk through a clear-cut forest. It is evocative of that that sense of loss and of devastation yeah. and of something that has ended and cannot be recovered. That incredible Im- emotional impact of loss. Yes. It changed. It, and it looks like that... a graveyard. It, it has the sense of a graveyard. Yes. It does. And the 193 pails are actually representative of the country's 
recognized by the UN. Wow. That's the significance of the number. Okay. So I'm talking to everyone in the world, and this is there. Each pale represents a country. And then so, there's yeah. one last tree. And there's one last tree. And so you're giving, you're inviting people to be that person who is facing that last tree. Yes. And what happens to you as a person in that moment? I mean, my process is to give you the piece, the comments that I've heard. Many, many people have said it's so moving. It, the video is this, it's a combination of things, but a lot of it is this constant chopping. So in the video, all you see is this axe and then comes in a soundtrack. I have a, a friend who's a sound artist and she, I wanted this extraterrestrial type of soundtrack. I mean, you know, like you're walking on the moon type of thing. And I described to her sort of Pink Floydy feeling. And so she came back with a fantastic soundtrack. And then I merged the chopping noises with her soundtrack. And then all of a sudden it dies down and Jared Diamond begins speaking about Easter Island and what were they thinking. And his clip is very short. And then I come in with a chainsaw and mm -hmm. you hear the real loud noise mm -hmm. of start going over his voice as he's fading out. Mm -hmm. So the combination of the video and then the lights projecting on this mass of these stumps, it's people tell me it really makes them think about what are we doing to ourselves? Your work is very beautiful. The creations that you make are very delicate and complex and a lot of different earth tones, but they're very layered and there's a fragility about them. So, so we're talking about a very strong piece, but within that piece, there's a lot of delicacy and a lot of subtlety as well. And I think how it connects with people is very emotional and it's very immersive and it draws you in and I would say it's in your heart much more than in your face. I, I like your description because it's very much, I want it to be this sort of slow moving thing that you're thinking about and I, there's always an aesthetic to my work. I mean, the aesthetic is first and it's not about, it's not art with a text, it's not art t t t you know, talking to you, telling you what you're supposed to think, it's art telling you what I'm thinking, but but even if you didn't know exactly what I'm thinking, or you could react to it whatever way you want. I mean, I think the same thing happened with Hung Out in the projects. You come into it and the soundtrack is of all these sort of cacophonic noises, city noises, different city noises. I just wanted this sense of being in city life. Because the majority of the projects, my own experience of living in the projects, was in the inner city. And so I wanted that sense of, um, of, of noise and sound. The same person did the soundtrack for me out of New York. And then I had text scrolling along the wall that just said very simple little statements. Uh, like one of them was, you know, one in five children live in poverty. I mean, that's a staggering statistic. And we're in the most powerful country in the world. 20% of kids live in poverty? Really? This is a very long time ago for me when I was in that situation. My father got ill with MS. Uh, that happened when I was 10. By the time I was 14, there was no money left. And uh, I like to say to people I had, ex <laughs> had exotic beginnings. I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. 
we lived there until I was five, and then we lived in Barbados. My father at that time was working with my uncle, and they had started a industrial sewing machine business in Caracas, along with a, an Italian man that they had met in the army. So then when uh, they had a falling out, we ended up moving to Dallas, Texas. And then my father became ill and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. So they had a branch in Cleveland and we had one relative in Cleveland and that's how we ended up in Cleveland. There were five kids and we moved into Section 8 housing. We were people that were on food stamps and Medicaid. And, and then two, it was about two and a half years, maybe a little longer, and Jewish Family Service stepped in and got us a house. You know, that the, the one upside of all of that sort of horrific time was I had an amazing teacher at the school I ended up in, and he was the art teacher. And I had always been making things. I had been making things since I was a kid. I was the one constructing stuff. I used to take, during the holidays and things like that, I like Halloween, I would take and make out of eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper and I would cover a whole window and draw these big pumpkin things and do all of this kind of stuff. And I would draw big trees and I would put this stuff on the wall, but I was also making 3D objects. No one knew that I was Jewish. And that was an interesting experience as well because... I heard the anti-Semitism. And I had this instructor, and his name was Moses Pearl. And he was the other Jew in the high school. It was totally bizarre. And he went to the Cleveland Institute of Art, and he helped me get my portfolio together. And I went to the Cleveland Institute of Art, mainly because of Moses Pearl. So it was, this was a, a, a story of, an, uh, of a teacher really influencing a child. It was very, it was, so that's the good thing that came out of it. Right, and tell us a little bit about... Hung out in the projects. All these little rust and tea stained pieces of paper, different sizes of paper, and also silk organza little bags. And they were hung on a square clothesline, you know, the old-fashioned mm -hmm. clothesline. I started using this idea of the hang hanging your clothes out as a, a, a metaphor for revealing something about yourself, but also things are hidden. But in poverty... In, in still all over the world, people have their objects hung out on these lines. And you would look at these objects, and it was very strange to see these extremely personal underwear, for example. Exactly. Hanging out on these lines. So I, I said, I'm going to do a piece that involves clothespins and clotheslines. I've been doing this series of work called Skin. There's Skin 1, Skin 2. And at that time, I was making work about what it was like to have your skin cut and marked and what that felt like and how it felt to heal and what it meant to heal and what happens to skin over the course of a lifetime. Uh, I reuse objects. I recycle all kinds of things in my making of my work. And so I was doing these big stain paintings, but I decided it would be interesting to take these same stained little paper pieces and hang them all, these skins. So here were all these skins hanging on the line. And then they morphed into silk organza body shapes. How did you get interested in skin and healing? It, it's so odd how this stuff happens. You know, when you're making art, it's always the process, and the process leads you down a road. And at the time, I, I wanted to ha have a discussion about the body and just what happens to the body over the course of time and just life mm -hmm. and the passage of time. I said, well, what material can I use without actually using skin? I wanted to simulate skin. 
So I happened onto silk organza and I started tea staining it. The, the rust was a total accident. You know, the wonderful thing about making art is that you go with the accidents. The accidents come to you and then they take you down another path. So silk organza material, and I was staining it with the tea, and I used the rusted framework and different rusted things that I used to hang the silk organza. And when I picked it up, I went, oh my God, look what happens to the rust when the tea interacts with it. So I started doing all this experimental work with how much salt, how much fresh water, how much tea, how much rust. And then I developed this whole variety of colors. So I was developing my palette, essentially. And that's how I was able to control the darkness versus the lightness of one red dress that's in there. I, I, I wanted this interesting, strange sort of focal point contrast to come in suddenly. And you don't think about it too much at first, and then you realize, oh, that one's red. You mentioned Hurricane Katrina for the uh, last tree, and you mentioned it also for Hung Out and the projects. Well, it was important because something... I had buried this life that back there and hadn't really thought a lot about it. I mean, obviously, your, your process as an artist is continually being influenced. There are events that continually influence everything that you do, but... But you have also these periods of time where you suddenly have this epiphany or you have also this, you're really struck by it. And I just, I, I was amazed at looking at these pictures of what was going on because I also am a big animal person. And I, I started thinking also about the animals in these situations and they became also a metaphor for just humanity. I remember the first time I also started thinking about the predicament of animals and their vulnerability. I was at a lecture, and I know I'm digressing and going off course here. We like digressions here. <laughs> but I, I was at, a, at a, a lecture of an artist. I was in grad school getting my MFA in painting at SUNY Buffalo, and I was at the lecture by an artist by the name of Sue Ko, and she did these amazing pieces. Uh, they were drawings of the torture of pigs and what happens in pig farming mm. and she went undercover and you know got all these pictures and then came back and did these drawings and in the audience I was really struck by how insensitive people are they think they're being sensitive but but they're not and the person in the audience said how can you be so concerned about what happens to pigs when we have all of these things going on with human beings that were, you know, children, things that we do to human beings. And her answer was extremely telling. Uh, she said that if you, if you care for the lowest form of life, you will care for every other form of life. The way we treat animals shows our humanity. And then recently I had come across something that Aristotle had written. It was called a measure. A measure was how we uh, measure our humanity. And I started thinking, and that's how I got the title of the series of animal pieces. They're called a measure, colon, animal one, animal two. But the animals are in, hung out in the projects, but okay. they're on pillows and they're Got on it. the floor made out of a skin. Here, now, like when you this say one. skin, you Actually mean... skin. Actually skin. Yes. Cut the shape of an animal as a, from a piece of skin. Right. 
What kind of skin? Um, in this case, I think I think it was a lamb skin. And I have to tell you, I was very weirded out by, by using it. But an artist friend said, you know, I've got these skins. I'm not going to do anything with them. And I decided I was going to use it because I have this aversion to it. Now, that's not to say that I still, I, I, I use pieces of leather. I remember I said I find and collect. For years, I collected all these gloves off the sidewalks of New York. So every time somebody lost a glove and I saw it, it became mine. You know, you're just going, ah, another piece of art on the sidewalk. So you you are a collector. You've been collecting hair since 1995. So you do use hair in your art. And but I've also been collecting my own hair loss since 1998. All right, so how... And that is the number of projects that I work on, and that is the work that is about aging and beauty. God, since, well, since the mid-90s. Prior to that, this is a whole other body of work, I, I, I had done these big paintings of women bodybuilders. I was doing this whole work about women and power, and then I, I, I shifted. But the collecting of hair, I had, I had a multitude of salons collecting hair, I mean, you got to realize there's a lot of hair that it takes to stuff a lot of objects. <laughs> and I have a lot of objects. <laughs> so I'm down to only one salon right now collecting hair for me. There's these big bins, and they're marked hair. And I sort it by color, depending if I'm working on projects where I'm using the hair and it shows. When I'm stuffing it, I am very conscious of the light-colored hair being where I want it to be light because of the organza is essentially, it's a, it's a semi-transparent material. And the reason I really gravitated towards the silk organza as well to simulate skin and body parts is because when you stuff it with hair, all the little hair pieces stick out. And when I use, I also combine encaustic. And encaustic, if you're not familiar with the material, it's, it's a combination of, I use a, a formula with uh, beeswax, carnauba wax, and it takes turpentine and damar varnish and you, and you cook it and you make sure you cook it outside because you'll kill yourself if you don't. But encaustic is one of the, one of the oldest methods of painting. That's like the very early paintings uh, were made with wax and pigment. And I rarely use the pigment. A lot of people, they buy it. I make my own. I get the big chunks of beeswax and I get the Damar crystals and I make these batches. And I use it as a coating on the organza because it created that visceral skin-like quality. That's how I started using it. I went, what can I do to create skin? So the process can lead you to your materials and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So when you're in the midst of the materials, they can direct you. And when you're looking for an answer to how you're going to portray something, you come to the material. And I want to just say yet again that your artwork is very complexly beautiful. Thank it, you. It, 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 you know, because we're talking about skin and body parts and hair and, you know, yeah. uh, forgive me, but if I didn't know, I might go, ew, right? Right. And aging and body parts have right. both their beautiful sides and their horrific sides. But right. your art, the aesthetic is very powerful and the engagement is very powerful. It's not... It's not pushing people away. It's really drawing it's people enticing. in. It's enticing. Yes, yeah. which I, which is what I am trying to do. That I mean, I want the beauty part. Uh, the series that was called Fallout 
colon, beauty lost and found. In 2005, I had been collecting my hair in jars for years, by the year. And I suddenly decided, what if I daily make a little doodle of it so I could keep track time-wise? So I was starting to think more and more about aging and what it means to lose your beauty. And the, But when I started collecting my hair, I had a thyroid condition and I was just collecting because I thought, oh, it's a great material and I, I've got wads of it falling out of my head. And people look at me and they go, really? Because I have a lot of hair. <laughs> But at the time, it seemed like a lot less hair to me. And so I, I started doodling it daily. And then and I thought... what do you mean by doodling? Like actually twisting and turning it. And I, I was thinking about, okay, I have this wad of hair that I've lost today. I take it out of the shower. I take it out of my brush, wherever it is. And I wanted it as this documentation of my own loss. And I'll, I'll tell you, you know, what why I was thinking that because especially when you're younger I mean, people would comment constantly on my hair I mean I'd go to the salons and they go oh my god you have such beautiful hair you have such beautiful hair and you start to notice like the texture of your hair changes things are different it mm -hmm. doesn't seem as beautiful anymore so mm -hmm. I had this identity my beauty was tied to mm -hmm. my hair so I thought well how can I now make this thing that I've lost beautiful again and I thought, I'll make these really beautiful drawings of them. Uh -huh. And making a doodle, the line is very beautiful. The, the curved form is considered the beautiful form. So I had this curly hair. And the doodles were all like, you know, swirling. I had it inherently within the hair. I mean, hair is a fascinating medium. And how I when, I, when I started getting involved with hair and thinking about using it as a medium, I thought it was such a perfect medium because... It remains after life, and it contains your complete DNA. It's beautiful when it's on your head. It's beautiful when you draw, make a drawing of it, but it sure is ugly when it's in the drain, and if it happens to be on the table or people get a little creeped out. So it, it inherently has this yin and yang right within the medium itself. Mm -hmm. And so I started making these big drawings, I proceeded to make these drawings and I wanted to make them as beautiful as possible because to me, the aesthetic is part of it. So here I was, I was capturing my beauty by making these drawings. <laughs> and then you have these very neat wooden sculptures that have names of women's, women's names. names. I, I wanted to make a series of portraits and I started thinking about what is a portrait and how does it portray somebody and what does it mean to make a portrait of myself or what does it mean to make a portrait of a person? And then I started thinking about what does it mean to make a portrait of a name and what's in a name? And I started thinking about, well, I'll conjure up a name and I'll think about the person that could be that name. And then, strangely enough, they started to really be like the people I was thinking of. So I started making these little boxes. So they're kind of like little heads. But they're boxes. But they're boxes. They're wooden boxes. And they have hair protruding out of them. And they have encaustic. I use a lot of encaustic. So there's wax on them. And little bits of silk organza. And, that, and I have one that is kind of like a, it's almost like a shroud, like a little reliquary. You know, that they, they kind of feel that way. 
people thinking again, ooh, but they're not at all. No, they're and, just wonderful. They're, and, they're playful and, and right, very right. friendly, and I think. And they're, and they're kind of fun. And so when I came up, for example, the one that is called Victoria, and this was with all the, the nipples in the drawer and the hair, <laughs> the hair bra, I started thinking of, well, Victoria, I think of Victoria's Secret. I mean, it's stupid, but I think this is what I thought of. I thought, okay, well, let's go with it. Negative space and positive space have always fascinated me as well. I used to I used to teach drawing and figure drawing. Uh, I consider myself a draftsman, draftswoman. <laughs> One of the thing, first things that you try to teach people is to look at the negative space. So when you're formally composing, every space counts. And it can also mean things conceptually. I don't, I'm not interested in uh, giving a exact description of what the piece is exactly supposed to be because mm -hmm. that's not part mm. of art yeah. for me. But it's it's kind of this vague sense that I want to convey this and this and then I move on and start conceptualizing it. I always want people to have some kind of visceral response. It's always fascinating to me when people are repulsed, but most of the time they go, it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I, 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 and I really didn't, I don't think about the fact that it's beautiful. I think I'm doing these objects and I want to make them within my aesthetic that mm -hmm. I have been following all my life. And yet what comes out of that, it becomes these beautiful things. I can remember once I was sewing, I have, I was making all these little paper pieces and I was sewing, whenever I was traveling, I would take these little pieces and I would have my needle and thread and I would be, I was, remember I was sewing in an airplane. And I also take my sketchbook wherever I go. So when I was traveling on the, the subway or the trains or whatever, I would have my little book and I'd be working on one of my ideas for a sculptural piece. But I was, at this point, I was sewing on these pieces that were going to actually be in, in the work. And I remember the uh, flight attendant says to me, she goes, that's so beautiful. What are you working on? And I suddenly thought, well, I guess they really are beautiful. I thought I was simulating skin. When I see a piece that's really well done, I want to make a piece that's really well done. I get ready to go back to work. When you're an artist, it is, it's all about thinking about it all the time. You do, you think about it constantly. And I think my biggest phrase when people ever ask me like, you know, well, how did you become an artist or why are you making art? And I just say, well, I can't not make it. It's just happening. Well, thank you, Babs Rheingold. Oh, well, um, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. My, me too. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>